Welcome. You are listening to Conversations from Christ Church Cranbrook. We are a faith community located in Metro Detroit who have been transformed by God's acceptance, love, and grace. Whoever you are, wherever you find yourself on the journey of faith today, we pray this podcast will feed your soul and inspire your spirit. by Michael, which was the Oxford Book of Prayer. And uh, that was an incredible gift to me. It was a lovely gesture, and it was something that I've treasured my entire life, and it also uh, profoundly influenced me. And then later on, um, Michael took my place when I left General Theological Seminary. Uh, Michael kept it, came in and took my position there. And um, again, there's been an incredible kind of working with the same kind of things. And today, Michael is wearing my owl. He came in and <laughs> borrowed it. And as, as it can only happen when you have good friends, just, it was just his to take. That's his way to go. So we've known each other since we were 25. He has been incredibly active in the areas of spirituality and social justice. His book is not to be missed. Um, he, uh, in addition to visiting with Mother Teresa, he also worked for two years with Desmond Tutu in the 90s, uh, during the time in which South Africa was undergoing his first peaceful transmission of power, as it were. And um, Michael has uh, written beautifully about that through the prism of Desmond Tutu. And um, one of the things we were going to ask him to speak about today was to answer the question, what does a saint look like in 2021? But I um, know that we're starting this class in the creed, and I also know that there's no one who can address both of these topics, maybe all three, maybe everything, better than Michael himself. So without further ado, let's bring Michael in. It's so good to be actually here and present and just being able to, to be with you in the flesh and in person. Um, because for those of you who are virtual, that's been my habit. So um, it's good to be on the other end of things. Yeah, so as uh, Father Bill was saying, um, this is about the creeds. Um, and what does the saint look like is, is more about my talking about Tutu's um, life, my book on his, his life and the biography that I wrote on him. But what I want to concentrate with you on is the creeds. Um, because I think Father Bill wanted me to uh, open this up. And I think hopefully you were going to have some experiences to understand this in a series. Is that right, Father Bill? Yes, please. So I'm just going to make sure the door gets open quietly. And so um, we're still settling in here. So as we are getting settled, then I will begin about the creeds and how they are important for us in the church. So 
The main thing that I want to say is, I think the creeds of the church are the anchors for how we have a true north. In other words, the creeds of the church give us a reference point for what we believe in. And it's the paradox because those who gave us these creeds were in turmoil because we didn't really know what to believe, especially around Jesus, because it's not natural to believe that a human being can also be God. So the early church was in turmoil, trying to figure that out primarily. And that search, that conundrum, in many ways led to the major creeds of the church. In our tradition, the Anglican Episcopal Church tradition, we embrace two creeds, the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed. And again, as you know, in our Anglican history, we started out with a divorce, right? So we too were not much different than the turmoil of the early church trying to figure out Jesus. Because the Anglican church started out with a need for a compass of identity, especially as kings and popes were battling it out for who was in control. So what I want to do is for us to think about and reflect on the spiritual and practical implications of the creeds. And so those of you at home, if you want to ask specific questions in the content of the creeds, especially the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed, if you have particular questions of what certain things mean in those creeds, please put those in the chat and we can come back to them in our Q&A. But what I want to do is to sort of give a broad sweep of how the creeds themselves are important for us in our Christian identity and in our practice, our spiritual practices. The term creed um, comes from the Latin credo, which means I believe. And the church's creeds vitally assume human beings will always have questions about belief. So it's a paradox. The creed is here, knowing that we will always have questions. And then the other side that seems contradictory is that the creed is that which should always answer our questions. So it's built in the creeds that we will investigate, critique. Um, our contexts around us are always changing, but the creeds are meant for a stability in which all these varied contexts will not change our belief, especially in the one undivided trinity we call God. So that's the nutshell of why the creeds are important. They are a GPS 
there are a way for us to be able to know what we believe without getting into the weeds and to prevent what you know of as heresy. The creeds are meant to help us understand what we believe, but to know that we're going to be in so many different kinds of contexts that we're going to have to understand how we believe in common. So I want to do a, a way of understanding the creeds through um, what I call morals. And I depend on a writer, Ronald Osborne, and he has values instead of morals. And I want to talk about these morals that come out of the creeds and why I think they're important for us. So the creeds begin in controversy. They begin in similar ways to watching CNN or Fox News and how you have pundits on one side or the other trying to say what they understand as truth. The creeds were similar to that and that you had these early church leaders, many of them bishops, who were vying for their particular view. And then you had someone else who were trying to articulate their perspective. And especially, as I said, around who is Jesus, because Jesus is this kind of C.S. Lewis uh, uh, wardrobe that you're going through. Jesus is this window which we are going into the whole of all that comes out of the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. But there's an interesting note that I have to say here historically that comes out of what I'm saying to the controversies around the creeds. There were many objections, especially as we get into the Reformation and as we get into current times and theology. There are many objections to the creeds themselves. themselves. One such object objection is that the creeds are extra biblical, meaning the creeds aren't in the Bible. Another objection is that um, some think the creeds are against certain canonical books in the Bible. In other words, some of the things that are actually said in the Nicene Creed and the Apostles' Creed are not literally written in the Bible. So for some people, if it's not written in the Bible, we are in trouble because everything the Bible says for many Christians is what is considered um, inerrant. In other words, it has no fallacy in it. The Bible comes directly from God. That's what some people believe. And so they think the creeds are themselves wrong because they're not literally in the Bible. So do you understand what I'm saying? So there are objections to the creeds themselves. And these objections to the creeds themselves go back to these early church debates. There's also another objection that the creeds are somehow not really um, about faith, personal faith. 
the creeds seem to be about corporate faith, and they're not really personalized. In other words, a second objection to the creed saw them as propositional rather than personal. The slogan, for example, no creed but Christ, emphasized the relational and, and the nature of faith that we have as individuals. So in other words, most of the creeds are about propositional statements. I believe in God and propositional statements of I believe in the Holy Spirit or I believe in the Son, Jesus Christ. And they're not really about how I need Jesus in the deep night of prayer. So a propositional statement seems to be more of an objective statement and not really a personalized statement. So that's another critique. And then the last critique of the creeds is especially for those in Reformed church traditions is that they seem to separate instead of unify. The creeds seem to separate instead of unify. And in other words, there are people who critique that the creed is the true north. Because if you don't believe in the content of these creeds, then you are just dividing us. And so those, those objections are important in terms of what I'm going to say as the reason why these creeds are important in terms of morality. And let me get into the first one of why the creeds are actually moral. So I want to first say that the creeds are moral documents and are truly important for us as a GPS because we need the creeds to worship. That's the first one. And usually in our worship services, we do not, in our Eucharist and our communion, we do not use the Apostles' Creed. We use the Nicene Creed. And you notice in the Nicene Creed, it's we believe, right? So the we believe is showing that we are worshiping together. And also the morality around that is that we need each other to worship. We need each other to worship. And this is an important fact because since the European Enlightenment, most important was I, the, the, Rene Descartes was a famous philosopher who came up with the statement, I think, therefore I am. So everything was put into the I, the personal relationship. But the Nicene Creed begins with we believe. And I think that's a moral statement because it teaches us that in order to really worship God, remember the image, especially in the book of Revelation, you've got cherubim and seraphim and angels and other kinds of creatures. When you worship God, it's not just some sole individual agent. It's a whole communion of saints. And I think this is moral because we live today in a very individualistic society. And the creeds, especially the Nicene Creed, is a moral indicator for us to try to practice community, especially in the Western 
world. So the first corrective, I think, the creeds give us is a moral compass to try to be community and not just individuals. And and aside, I think in our pandemic, um, we have a much more appetite to under, we have a better appetite to understand what I'm saying. We realize more that we need each other in this pandemic. And I think also we realize that whether we like it or not, we are interconnected. So what's going on in India easily can affect what goes on in the United States. So I think in this this new normal, we are much more communal than what we were. And I think that's good news. The second moral for why the creeds are important and represent the true north is that the creeds provide a covenant. Um, A covenant means a promise together. And that's important in terms of morality. Um, What are some of the most important covenants that you know of that Christians practice? Those of you um, virtually or those of you who are present, what are some covenants that we practice that we hold dear as Christians? Baptism. Baptism, that's good. What else? Uh, Someone in the chat says marriage. Marriage. Any other covenants that you can think of? Mm-hmm. What's that one? Mm-hmm. Communion is a covenant. Yes, that's right. That we will do as Jesus requires of us to come together to eat the bread and to drink the wine. That's a covenant that okay. we make. Someone in the chat mentions friendship, you know, relationship. That's right. To be loyal, to hold secrets that only come through that friendship and intimacy and not to betray the trust of our friends. Good. Would confirmation be different from communion? Yeah, well, that's another sort of controversy. (laughs) Yeah, but confirmation is a covenant um, because you are moving from infant baptism into the consciousness of those who are coming into the church to consciously embrace this faith. So confirmation, I do think, is a covenant. Another one in the chat was uh, reconciliation. Reconciliation is a covenant to to be able to understand that we no longer will live in resentment with each other. And those who are the victims and those who are the perpetrators, that we will no longer accept those identities as defining us. And the covenant to hold that to be true. The last one. Coordination. Coordination. Yeah. Yeah, so um, for Chris and myself, anybody else remained in here? Okay, for Chris and myself, we uh, made vows to, um, vows of obedience uh, to God and also vows to, in our church structure, to a bishop that we will be faithful to our call of ministry as priests. And, and- do not the people also make vows, and almost all of these include vows of the people to support us. You know, 
And the people also covenant not to crucify us as priests. <laughs> <laughs> and to indeed the word that Chris used to support us. Okay, so that's good. So the morality of a covenant is to me one of the most powerful um, supports of a creed. Because a creed is we are covenanting together to believe. We believe. And even in the Apostles' Creed, which is I believe, and a little word about the Apostles' Creed, um, the Apostles' Creed, we don't know exactly when it was written. Um, it was probably written after the Nicene Creed, but it was uh, allegedly uh, understood that the Apostles, you know, the 12 disciples, came up with this true north of what we believe. And most likely it was more the bishops in the early church that made these decisions of the Apostles' Creed that looked so much like the Nicene Creed. But the main difference is this first person of I believe and the Apostles' Creed. The Nicene Creed is extremely helpful for us as the church, especially in what we are saying in terms of morality, because it makes us believe in common, not just as an individual or not just personally, but what is it that we believe in common? And a covenant is what helps us to practice, practice is the operative word, to practice what we believe in common. The third moral aspect of the creeds is instruction. So, you know, a human being, in order to know to, to be a human being, a child has to imprint on the parent. So a child has to learn language, for example, from those who, especially the parents, a child gazes in the parent's face in order to recognize themselves. So the imprinting um, behavior that the child has on the parent points to this third of instruction. Namely, we need to be taught what we believe. And this is a hard thing for us sort of bullheaded adults and this fierce raise yourself up by your own bootstraps, America and Western world. This is a difficult um, uh, moral because we are so fiercely interdependent. We don't. We don't like being taught about what to believe. It seems to go against the grain of our kind of democratic worldviews of human rights and um, uniqueness of the individual. The, the morality of the creed for instruction is inviting us into understanding that none of us have all of the right answers. Only God does. And that's why faith is an operative word in all of our creeds, 
Nicene and Apostles' Creed. And faith is an operative word. And faith is an operative word, especially when it comes to we, as long as we are on this planet, need to be instructed in faith. None of us are ready-made, and as long as we're on this planet, we need some instruction. We need guidance into what to believe. And to me, the, the chief virtue in terms of morality, and what I'm saying, is humility. The virtue of humility would help us become more of a church that has unity. So in other words, thinking that we have all the absolute answers instead of thinking that we're more open to first listening before we speak around issues of faith. Because issues of faith are, are carrying the connotation of the word faith, of evidence that is not seen. Evidence that is not seen. Yes, Chris. It just occurred to me that in this uh, conversation we all have been having around the restrictions around COVID, masks, social distancing, and so on, particularly in relation to the church, we all have been coming to church with a lot of opinions about what we should and shouldn't be doing. I heard somebody tell me the other day, I don't believe we should be wearing masks. I, I, I. And it's been an ongoing year long kind of meditation, I think, to that point you're making about humility. And uh, maybe a little bit of obedience for us to keep saying, you know, we can have a lot of opinions, but at the end of the day, we are bound in unity around her decisions, whether we agree 100% or not. And I think that's a, that's a spiritual practice in and of itself. I think that's been related to what you're talking about. I agree. Yeah. And I think we get into so many difficulties around this absolutist individualistic worldview. We're, we're like herding cats in the Western world. It's very difficult to do things and to believe in common. So I want to ask you all an embarrassing question. What is it that you are doing through the virtue of humility to continue to be instructed in the Christian faith? What are you doing in humility to continue to be instructed in the Christian faith? This is for those in person and to all of you online. What are you doing in this humility of the creeds to be instructed in the Christian faith, knowing that you are not ready-made knowing that you will never arrive in full knowledge of God. So what are you doing to be intentionally, to, be, to, to have an intention of being instructed in the Christian faith? So you can put it in the chat and we can have a lot of discussion here as well. What are you doing? Telling prayer. Wonderful. Every day. And how do you do it? Do you use the Book of Common Prayer? Do you use a virtual? Do a virtual? Yeah. So do you depend on this community here, Christchurch Cranbrook, to do more prayer? Or do you do more? Right. 
So this community, you're practicing a communal faith, but you're allowing the instruction of your daily habit of prayer to allow God to teach you. I'm learning a lot about the Old Testament. And so is that Bible studies? Are you, are you also in Bible study, or are you referring to morning prayer? I'm learning prayer plus scripture. Others, what are you doing to continue being instructed in the Christian faith? I'm trying to see God in every person, whether I know them or not, them or not. I'm looking for signs of a love that I found in other people in everybody. So existentially, when you meet other people, you were trying not to prejudge them or categorize them as something that's a stereotype, but to try to see God in each person that you need. That can be exhausting. It is. <laughs> and I should say it ties with the sense of radical acceptance as well, that you have to practice both simultaneously to not be exhausted. Yeah. And sometimes it is exhausting. And I fail a lot. And is that okay if you fail? Yes. Do you feel as though you don't have to beat yourself up? Yeah, sometimes not in the moment it's not okay, but as the day goes on, it is. And so the confession is also a part built in the habits of being a church to help us stop beating ourselves up, right? Because the truest confession is, I am not God. Isn't that right? Yeah. Any others? Before we go to the last, someone brings up in the chat uh, the simple practice of asking questions. Um, this is Hunter. I'm speaking. I don't know. Can you hear me? Yes. So I um, love the question. And the thing that came to mind for me was the seemingly simple act of kneeling at any point in our service or ever because there's so much in my world and I suspect for many that says stand up like be tall be strong get through things be be everything right and kneeling to me says I am so small I only need to receive I do not know I humble myself that's wonderful and it's not so much about a lack of self-esteem it's it's about this true north that I'm trying to say in terms of recognizing this mystery of a transcendence of God who is also imminent, who is also with us. But sometimes we take that for granted and in our habits and in the dysfunctions of bad habits, we sort of replace that transcendence. We take familiarity breeds contempt. So the, the imminence of God we take for granted. And so we, we no longer really believe that God can do that which is impossible because we are controlling the narrative. So it's not about having bad self-esteem in that kneeling. It's about recognizing someone beyond ourselves. So I like, I like that actual practice of bending the knee for practicing that. 
someone in the chat echoes uh, Mother Teresa's advice to you from the sermon today. Uh, lots of praying, lots of praying. Uh, first, trying to rid myself of negative comments and negative thoughts of others. Good. So you, I think you got the lesson of what you mean by the morals of the creed and instruction. So just as long as you know, none of us arrive in terms of some kind of perfect faith or some kind of PhD that means that we no longer need to learn. We still, as long as we are on this planet, we can be an octogenarian or whatever, we still are imprinting on identity. We need someone else to show us that we are true. The last one, there is a morality to the creeds in terms of practicing contemporary, contemporary ways of being. There's a moral to the traditional aspect of how the creeds have lasted 2,000 years, but how those creeds give us a way to be creative in our contemporary times. Let me explain this with a kind of tragic situation in South Africa, and this goes back to Father Bill for how I'm tying in my book on, on Archbishop Tutu. So the point I'm trying to make here is that the creeds give us a stability um, um, in which we can move off into what appears to be vulnerable, even dangerous things. Because in our faith, we have a contentment with God. Not that we are arrived in our knowledge of God, but we know that God is like a good shepherd and will not leave us abandoned. But the problem in our contemporary day around this notion of the morality of the creeds is this example. For nearly, nearly 50 years, since 1948, when the Nationalist Party won its first election on a blatantly racist policy, one had found South African Christians on one side or other of the great divide created by apartheid policy. Instead of the church's ancient Nicene Creed, one's attitude to apartheid became a test of orthodoxy, a status of confession. Consequently, institutional bodies such as church bodies of the Reformed Church, the Lutheran Church, even the Anglican Church, suspended those South African members thought to be guilty of the heresy of apartheid. Tolerance had ended for apartheid's theological justification of it. Apartheid is a theological worldview that the Afrikaner is God's chosen people to separate the races. And so, the church's work was invaluable in this period as new theological perspectives emerged to explain why apartheid was wrong 
and why Christians around the world had a responsibility to resist evil. Now, when I write this, I want to bring this closer to home. Currently, the test of Christian orthodoxy seems to be everything except the creeds in the Christian life and practice in the United States. For example, when running for president of the United States, Donald Trump boasted that support for his presidential campaign would not decline, even if he shot someone in the middle of a crowded street. I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody, and I wouldn't lose voters, Trump said at a campaign rally. Such a test of ultimate loyalty seems to be ordinary today, especially when it comes to choosing loyalty between Christianity and white identity. So as I said, for nearly 50 years, South Africa went through the same litmus test of what was ultimately the truth. What is the creed for knowing if you are a true person? Now, we in the United States are now understanding our true identity, not based on the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed, but on a line, and an arbitrary line, I say, between the loyalty to a political party, a loyalty to our racial identity. There are things that have replaced our creeds in terms of what the true North is. And in our baptism, we say, and we have covenanted, that our primary identity is in Christ, not in Nancy Pelosi, not in Donald Trump, not in being a Republican, not in being a Democrat, that our true North, we say, as Christians, is in Christ. But in our contemporary day, we do not behave as if what we say in our Nicene Creed is true. So I'm going to end with that. Hopefully provocative thing to keep you all awake. <laughs> and then to open up questions, comments, but not too long of a sermon, because we'll have to get on to our 11 o'clock service. So those of you virtually, those of you who are present. There's a couple questions from the chat that we can get to right now. What is, uh, if you want to do quickly, uh, Holy Spirit versus Holy Ghost? Um, we use them interchangeably, maybe. Uh, can you maybe speak a little bit about that? Uh, reflect differently in the creeds? Does that reflect a different theology? Yeah, the ghost is really a, 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 it's, it's a linguistic worldview that comes from us, from our British sisters and brothers. That term ghost was interchangeable with spirits. Um, but I like, I like using ghosts because it, um, as I'm trying to say in the sermon, it, it, it doesn't domesticate God. You know, it kind of gives you that sense of, uh, of honor, um, 
of respect for God, but it's not quite the same as when we say spirit. Ghosts can kind of frighten us. Um, but if we understand God's holiness, ghost is something much different. It's trying to shock us. It's trying to set the bone that's broken. Oh, another question from the chat. Uh, do, you, do you have any thoughts on uh, Jesus being seated at the right hand of the Father, not the left? And, uh, <laughs> and the person is asking that because if you think about your heart, your heart being more to the left than the right. Yeah, I think, I think that's imagery, is poetry. Um, Jesus was constantly trying to teach the disciples about power and his poetry of sitting on the right hand because Jesus took the disciples to task when they took that literally. As they were trying to sit at the right hand, Jesus started to use language like, if you want to be first, if you want to sit at the right hand, you got to be last. And if you want to be great, you got to be the least. So sitting at the right hand is sort of this Greco-Roman worldview being next in line and power, but Jesus was using that poetically in terms of sitting at the right hand, not to try to induce a power grab, but to show that God's, again, transcendence um, is so much more beyond what we think and can imagine. Those of you who question, yes. So resurrection of body harm or cremated? Say that one more time. So if you're cremated, it's a resurrection of the body and heart. Um, Matthew, Matthew chapter 19 is my answer. With mortals, things are impossible. But with God, all things are possible. And also scripturally, and also scripturally there is imagery of we return to the dust, ashes to ashes. So, and also if you watch science fiction movies like I do, I'm a big science fiction fan, the, the spread of particles in our body can easily be brought back together. And if you do some quantum physics, that'll, that'll also give you the imagery of how the ashes can be brought back to life. Yes. The Philip Oakley, whether the spirit uh, proceeds from the Father and the Son, seemed to cause a bit of a stir about a thousand years ago or so. <laughs> Got a student here, back here. Yeah, it's, it's part of the split between the Western Church and the Eastern Church. And just like in Northern Ireland, when we use terms like Protestants and Catholics and there's something deeper going on. It's not just the language and the descriptions of these Christians, not just the language and description of the Holy Spirit. Um, it's really, I think, it goes back to that ancient divorce between the Western Christian and the Eastern Christian, if that makes any sense. And I think, I think the Holy Spirit, um, does need particularity. I think the Orthodox in their fierce defense of the Holy Spirit needs to be understood. Like I was trying to say in my sermon, most of us don't really in the Western world don't focus so much on the Spirit unless you're in the black church 
or if you're the charismatic Pentecostal church, or unless you are Orthodox. They really focus on the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. But I think the theology around Filioque is really something much deeper. It's really that broken relationship that the Eastern Church has with the Western Church. Yes? I grew up in a Lutheran church, and the Athanasian Creed was a regular part. As a child, I disliked it because it added like 30 more minutes to the service. <laughs> but I was wondering if it's ever been a part of the Anglican tradition of Catholic. Good point. It was part of the Reformation with Luther. Um, and so they held on more to three creeds. So the Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, and the Athanasius Creed. Um, and again, you know, if you scratch the surface, more is going on there. The Anglican Church only has or focuses on the two creeds, the Apostles' Creed and the Nicene Creed. And the Nicene Creed is used in worship, and the Apostles' Creed is used in the daily, more on a daily basis. So in your morning prayer, you find the Apostles' Creed. But there's nothing wrong with the, the creed that Athanasius is known to have helped um, construct. In fact, Athanasius is known to be in all three, to be a major leader in all, all three of these major creeds. We have to stop there, but, um, and I want to apologize. I look forward to joining you in Zoom. I had to run out the room to go take care of everything. <laughs> we were getting ready for our 11 o'clock, but... I've heard enough to know that this has been an incredibly rich, beautiful uh, presentation. And um, I, I can't thank you enough, Michael, for being here. I really can't thank you enough for the incredible, beautiful work that you've done with our online teaching and with this moment and with your preaching today. Um, I can't thank you enough for the, the long-standing friendship we've had when we pick up right where we were. And even uh, despite the distance and time between us sometimes. Thank you so much for that. And um, we look forward to seeing you all next week. Did this uh, let us know if we can make this better or make this different, okay? We all want to sure somehow step into this new world. So God bless you all. Please join me in thanking Michael. Thank you so much for listening to Conversations at Christchurch Cranbrook. To learn more about our mission, worship services, and learning opportunities, please visit us at ChristchurchCranbrook.org. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at Christchurch Cranbrook. We look forward to you joining us again, and may God bless you now and always.